From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Department of Defense is leading an important effort now to evaluate and review the national security implications and most important to conduct a review of the methods of access, accountability, and control procedures uh, that the department has so that something like this can never happen again. Attorney General Merrick Garland says the Department of Defense is conducting a review of the nation's security protocols after a 21-year-old Massachusetts Air National Guardsman allegedly leaked classified documents in what's been described as one of the most damaging intelligence disclosures in a decade. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham questioned why a low-level IT specialist had access to such sensitive and wide-ranging information, allegedly from military operations in Ukraine to intel on both America's adversaries and allies. I am stunned that somebody at that level could have so much access. So the question is, how did he get it and why did he do it? Jack Teixeira has been charged with the unlawful retention and transmission of national defense information and classified material under the Espionage Act, charges that carry a maximum of 15 years in prison. My guest is national security law expert Bradley Moss, a partner at Mark Zaid. Brad, do officials know the extent of this leak yet? So as far as we can tell, they don't necessarily know the full extent of what was extracted and what was put out there whether on the Discord chats or on other media platforms. That's part of why, though, they took action now before they had the full universe, because they couldn't risk anything more coming out. They couldn't risk any additional leaks from this particular individual. They wanted to shut down the source of the threat, and then they can always supplement and update the indictment once they have a better understanding of the full universe of what went on here and what was leaked out. But we do know that it was top secret or SCI level documents? Up to up to and including. I don't think it was all top secret, but it was up to and including top secret information with sensitive compartmented information access required. It's very sensitive information. It's on par with a lot of the kind of stuff that Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning leaked out with some of our more sensitive secrets. And for a lot of it requires not only specific authorized access to gain you know, control of it, but it's in very narrow, confined areas. If it's electronic, it's a particular terminal you have to use. If it's a physical document, it's a particular space you have to go into. So part of this investigation and this ultimate, the you know, ongoing prosecution of this individual will be determined how he got this stuff out and where internal security procedures broke down. I understand that it's not so much about his age, but rather how such a low-level IT specialist got access to such a wide range of sensitive information. 
So it's not unusual for someone even at 18 to have a top secret clearance. All that means is that the nature of your position and the requirements for you to do your job require you to be authorized to see information up to that level. That doesn't mean that on day one with your top secret clearance with SDI access eligibility that you can just start searching up anything you want. You're still supposed to be limited to what you have, what is called the required need to know. So you're only supposed to be able to see things up to that level that you, for purposes of your position, have a need to know. This young individual was basically sort of like a, a junior level IT network professional. So his job may have permitted access to these documents, not to you know, generally review them and rely upon them to create product or to debrief individuals, but rather to sort of be the glorified engineer who's ensuring everything can get transferred through, that the higher level policy people and analysts have access to it no matter where they are, no matter which system it's on, he's there to ensure the data flows properly. He first posted text of classified information in this Discord chat room in December. Should authorities have discovered this leak sooner? And, you know, why did it take the media to uncover so much of the information? So the reality is for security officials and even counterintelligence officials that they can't easily get into private platforms and non-public chat rooms, whether it's on Discord, if it's on Twitter, if it's on Facebook, you can't just barge in there without breaking the law. They have to have some type of legal authorization to go in there, and they don't have the time and effort and resources to patrol the social media universe writ large. They would spend all day doing it, and they wouldn't even crack the surface of it. So it's not unusual that for someone such as this individual who was posting on this private Discord chat that no one else was really aware of it until it started leaking out. That's certainly plausible in our you know, current interconnected world, there's only so much security officials are going to be able to do. They just don't have the time to patrol the Internet, for lack of a better phrase. And quite candidly, if they were to try to do that, there'd be serious political backlash. One question is whether the leaker was enticed by another nation's intelligence agencies, because it's believed that they've infiltrated some online gaming community. So I understand they're still investigating that, whether or not it was another country, possibly Russia. Yeah, so I haven't seen any specific evidence of that yet. It's not out of the realm of possibility that some of the people in this Discord chat, so we know some were foreign nationals, according to the reporting, that some of them may have been sort of provoking him, you know, and instigating it so that he would do something along these lines. But ultimately, this was his choice, if the allegations are proven true. He's presumed innocent, of course. But this was apparently his choice to do so, to take this information, to try to, you know, show off to these other individuals and post this classified data and information in the Discord chat. So whether he knew he was being played and duped is something to be determined later. But from all I can see, it was a stupid young man who made a dumb mistake, and he's going to pay for it now, most likely with several years in prison. This case is different from the other leak cases that we've heard about, you know, WikiLeaks and Pentagon Papers, because it doesn't appear he was acting like a whistleblower, doesn't appear he was acting as a foreign agent. No, there doesn't seem to be any whistleblower element to this. He wasn't, you know, bringing this information out and giving it to the media, for example, in order to try to say, 
shine the light on what he would view as the difference between public statements of the government versus their private assessments about the war in Ukraine. He wasn't doing anything like that. He was showing off to a bunch of friends in a Discord chat. Maybe he was trying to impress a girl. I have no idea. But there's no indication he was doing this for anything remotely similar to the purported you know, public interest uh, argument that a Chelsea Manning or an Edward Snowden or a reality winner had and argued at sentencing. This is something where he just let his ego get ahead of him. If he is convicted, whether it's a plea deal or a prosecution, he's going to almost certainly have his lawyers argue with sentencing that he just got, you know, tied up in this. He was stupid and young, you know, try to mitigate some of the punishment so that he still has some hope for a life in 15 years. Attorney General Merrick Garland made clear that the U.S. wanted the charges to make others think twice before sharing secrets. But are these charges a stretch or are they sort of expected? These charges are certainly expected, and I have pretty considerable confidence that he will be convicted in some form, whether through a plea deal or through conviction at trial. This is something they have to do. They can't allow clearance holders to just run off with these documents, especially TSSCI documents, and post them where they can be stolen and shared worldwide without some kind of punishment. As you referred to, it seems like this case is not going to be too difficult for the prosecution. There's an electronic trail. But what could a possible defense be? The best defense, assuming he intends to make one, part of the best defense will be to attack the sufficiency of the government's case. There's no way I would ever put this kid on the stand to try to explain anything at trial. At sentencing, and you bring out all the you know peers and the family members and everything, you try to mitigate things. But for purposes of liability for trial... This is about, can the government make its case to track it specifically to him, to track specifically the details of him taking the records out of their secure location and putting them in this unauthorized area, namely the Discord chat? If they can do so, that's pretty much the ballgame, but that's the government's obligation to prove. President Biden at first downplayed the severity of the leak. Then he said the U.S. was still determining the validity of the documents. Is he just not saying everything or... Well, there is a non-trivial chance that some of the records that have been found on various platforms now, whether it's Telegram or Twitter, wherever, that some of them have since been altered from their original state. So the government is still assessing the validity, the authenticity of the documents they can find. They're still determining to what extent any of them were modified. We do know that there appears to have been efforts by the Russians and the Chinese once these documents started showing up outside of Discord, that there were efforts to download the original source data and alter it for purposes of disinformation. That's something that the government is still going to have to evaluate, and that's going to likely take months to do that full after-action damage report to determine what leaked out and what's actually authentic out there. There have been so many of these highly publicized leaks. Why haven't adequate safeguards been put in place already? Why are they, like, rushing now to try to put things into effect? So security is always fighting the last war in terms of trying to prevent future leaks. With Chelsea Manning, they started cracking down on CDs being used on classified systems. With Edward Snowden, it was flash drives. The problem that security officials face is there are something like 3 million people who hold a security clearance at some level or another. And I think at least 1 million of them hold top secret security clearances. They face an environment where U.S. personnel, whether they're contractors, government civilians, or military personnel, 
are all over the world in addition to being in the United States. They need to have constant, consistent access to the relevant records electronically, to say nothing of in certain circumstances, physically. And they have to do so in a way that is up-to-date and modern technology-wise. They have to permit a lot of information sharing across agencies and within offices. And there's not a perfect solution to do all that without some risk. And part of the risk analysis you do here as a security official is we have cleared these individuals with extensive vetting to have clearances. There's all these things we can do, and then there's things that we could do in addition that would completely disrupt government operations that we choose not to do because ultimately there has to be an element of honor and trust that we put in the people who we've given clearances to. It seems to happen more in the United States than anywhere else. Why is that? One reason is just the amount of classified data. We produce an exorbitant amount of information that we classify that you have to then oversee and manage. But the other part is, well, let's think of what you'd be facing here for leaking versus what you would face in, say, Russia or in China. Here, you might face, you know, if you're a reality winner, you spent a few years in jail. If you're Chelsea Manning, you spent a few years in jail and your sentence was commuted. You do this in China, you're executed. You do this in Russia, you fall down an open elevator shaft. So there's an element of fear there that isn't going to be, you know, something that you're going to see here, given that we are a constitutional republic and the punishment is not quite the same. Our allies' response has been muted, but apparently privately they've expressed some consternation about our apparent inability to keep their secrets safe. Do you think that in the long term we lose access to some methods of documents or collections because of these leaks? That's certainly always the concern. I mean, we saw a lot of that after Chelsea Manning leaked out the State Department cables and things like that back in 2010. You know, there was a lot of behind-the-scenes diplomatic playing nice, for lack of a better phrase, with some of these individuals saying, we're sorry for this. You know, we're doing these things to make sure this never happens again. And that's going to happen. Look, we're still the world's foremost superpower. Everybody still wants to be able to share access with us and to share information to further their interests. But yes, each time you have a major leak like this, you're going to have an international relations problem. And the diplomats are going to now have to do their job to, you know, reduce the temperature and alleviate some of the anger that our various allies are going to have. Finally, I mean, you mentioned all the problems, the 3,000 people who have clearance technology, that there's so much technology out there. But do you think anything substantive will be done in light of this? I certainly believe there should be some a considerable and extensive review of where the security procedures broke down here to figure out, one, whether or not this was just human error and laziness by security officials to implement the existing procedures, or two, if this spoke to a larger problem in terms of how access is compartmentalized. We just don't know the answer to that question yet. You know, reading the statement of facts in the current version of the indictment, I'm surprised he was able to pull off some of what he did in terms of getting the documents out without anyone noticing. And so it raises questions for me, basically, of where were the security officials? Were they asleep on the job, for lack of a better phrase? Those are things we're going to have to figure out first. Thanks, as always, Brad. That's Bradley Moss of Mark Zaid. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? 
And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. The Supreme Court's latest dent in the so-called administrative state came in a decision that opened up a new avenue for fighting off complaints by the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Federal Trade Commission. The justices unanimously said that companies and people facing agency investigations or complaints can go straight to federal court to challenge the agency's constitutional authority instead of waiting for an in-house judge's decision, a requirement for decades. Some of the justices hinted at the ruling during the oral arguments. Here are Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Samuel Alito. Given that laundry list of cases where the government didn't prevail, and, and I gather the one in the Fifth Circuit as well, doesn't that underscore the need for direct, uh, uh, a direct proceeding to raise the constitutional claim rather than waiting however many years before the agency? What sense does it make for a claim that goes to the very structure of the agency having to go through the administrative process. My guest is James Park, a professor at UCLA Law School. So, Jim, what does this decision really mean? I think in the short term, it's going to mean that there will be an increase in the number of cases raising constitutional challenges to the SEC that are filed in federal court. And what the case basically says is that if you have a constitutional challenge to the system of administrative adjudication, that you don't have to raise that issue in the administrative proceeding. You can file a separate federal court action in order to challenge the constitutionality of the overall administrative system itself. And so I think in the short run, we may see more constitutional challenges in administrative adjudications, but there are only a handful of viable arguments that the system is unconstitutional. And so I think after a few years, as the courts work their way through the constitutional issues, I'm not sure that over the long run, this is going to really change administrative practice before the SEC or the Federal Trade Commission. So basically, what this said is that the litigants don't have to wait for an in-house judge's decision as it has for decades. On a constitutional issue, on that particular type of argument, if you can frame it in terms of a constitutional issue with respect to the structure of the administrative law court, then you can file that separately in federal court. Now, if you have other arguments with respect to, you know, the basics of the administrative adjudication, you're going to still have to litigate that in administrative court. It's only these constitutional issues that are saying that the administrative law judges themselves are unconstitutional for some reason that can be raised in a separate federal district court proceeding. And, you know, it's a unanimous decision. And I think that, you know, we could see sort of the the reasoning is that, you know, can the administrative law judge decide on the constitutionality of their own job? Is that something within their unique competence? And also, is it fair for the person who is on trial in the administrative law court to have to wait for the administrative law proceeding 
to end and go through the system of appeals in order to challenge its constitutionality. When the main argument is that the harm I'm suffering is that I am in front of a unconstitutional administrative law judge, right? Should I be forced to raise that argument only in the administrative law proceeding, or should I be able to file a separate case in federal court that makes that argument? And I think the Supreme Court was right on that procedural issue. Was this based on separation of powers questions? Yes, it is a separation of power issue. And the basic argument is that administrative law judges are officers under the U.S. Constitution. And if they are officers, then the president of the United States has to have some ability to supervise those officers. And the claim is that the way administrative law judges are basically uh, regulated by the SEC is that they have certain tenure protections where they can only be fired for good cause pursuant to the Merit Systems Protection Board. And so because the president doesn't have enough direct influence over whether an administrative law judge should be in office, the argument is that this sort of violates the separation of powers because the president is supposed to have that power. And instead, it's been sort of funneled into this vague administrative agency, which is not in the Constitution, right? And there's an argument that the administrative state is in tension with the separation of powers and that you need the president to be able to supervise administrative law judges to some extent. That's the constitutional argument that will be raised, that was raised by Michelle Cochran in her part of this particular litigation. So, Jim, why doesn't the Supreme Court just decide the constitutional issue? We keep seeing case after case challenging, you know, the agencies. Why don't they just decide that issue and get it over with? It's a tough issue, and it has potentially far-reaching implications. And I think the Supreme Court wants to take its time on the issue and that it's content with sort of nibbling around the edges of the issue and clarifying certain procedural rules before it takes on the more meaty challenge of defining what could potentially be far-reaching limitations on the ability of administrative agencies to use administrative law judges. It could be a very momentous decision one way or the other. And so I think that they would prefer to take their time and allow different cases to percolate up through the system. They themselves are probably thinking about it to the extent that they have time to do so. They want to see the various parties on both sides continue to develop and think about the arguments. And at some point, they will decide this issue. Justices Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch said they would have issued a more sweeping ruling. Yes, that's right. I think Justice Thomas in particular is very skeptical of administrative courts and administrative law judges. And he's clearly signaling that to him, um, the system is unconstitutional. I think Gorsuch has a little bit more of a subtle view. It's unclear, I think, as to what he thinks of the system as a whole, but he simply made the basic point that if I have a federal constitutional claim, I should always be able to bring that in federal court. And he doesn't like the test that the Supreme Court applied in this case, which says that when Congress has set up an administrative system of adjudication, that for the most part, claims have to be decided within that system. He doesn't like that doctrine. He thinks it's too confusing. His basic point is that if I have a constitutional 
claim with respect to an issue, I should always be able to bring that in federal court. You know, as you mentioned, the Supreme Court has been chipping away at the administrative state. Doesn't that all give more power to the judiciary? It does give more power. It could give more power. But it also could mean more burden, more responsibility. Where are the two or 300 administrative cases that are filed before the SEC going to go if we don't have administrative law judges? Well, federal courts are going to have to hear those cases. Federal judges are very busy as it is, and these cases will still be filed. They'll be filed in federal court, and that's going to increase the workload of federal judges who are not experts in this area. And so it's going to give them more power, potentially, but it's also going to increase the number of cases that um, the federal judiciary is going to have to hear. And do you think that agencies will have to hire more lawyers to handle this shift? It's a good question. They might. I think that they potentially would have more work to do if they have to file these cases in federal court as opposed to before an administrative law judge. On the other hand, the vast majority of these cases settle, even the ones that are filed in federal court. And so it may simply be that they have to just simply shift the expertise of the lawyers they're hiring. And so um, it's unclear to me. I think it may may lead to more work. It may not necessarily lead to more work. Will more defendants take cases to trial if they have the right to a jury? They might. They might. And so you may have to hire more trial attorneys. Um, But I still think that um, the percentage of defendants who actually go to a jury trial is going to be a fairly small percentage, even if the cases are filed in federal court. You mentioned a couple of hundred cases. The FTC has only one administrative law judge in-house, and the SEC in recent years has shifted from using in-house judges to filing disputes in federal courts. So will this really take away a lot of their power or their leverage? That's right. They have they have shifted to some extent, but I'm you know, looking at the most recent numbers of 2022 right now in terms of the SEC's cases, and they're still filing 231 cases in administrative court, and that's compared to 231 civil actions in federal court. And, and so there are, you know, a few hundred still filed in administrative court, and there are also smaller follow-on proceedings that are filed in administrative court. So the SEC has shifted to some extent but they still are filing a substantial number of cases in administrative court. Now, two or three years ago, they might have been filing three or 400 cases in administrative court versus maybe a couple hundred in federal court. So there has been a shift, but there still are a substantial number of cases that the SEC files in administrative court. And quite frankly, administrative court goes faster for defendants and the parties. You know, if you're filing in federal court, you are in line with cases on all sorts of different subject matters, and the process will be much slower in federal court. So there still are advantages to allowing the SEC to file in administrative court, and you have a trained administrative law judge who is an expert in very complicated securities laws. Federal court judges also are very good and competent, but they may not have that expertise, and so they may even be more deferential to the SEC in certain cases. They may simply say, I don't understand this complex body of law. I'm going to defer to what the SEC is telling me. That's certainly a possibility with cases filed in federal court. Is it also more expensive in federal court? 
It is. It is a, a more expensive process overall, and you know the the litigation process can be more drawn out and involved and take longer. And so uh, lawyer time is going to cost more in that context. There may be inefficiencies in the process that make it a bit more expensive than having a proceeding in administrative court. Now, the defendants would say, though, that, you know, I'm willing to bear that expense because I'm usually going to lose before an administrative law judge. That's the (laughs) perception, is that, you know, this is an administrative law judge who works at the SEC, who is not independent. And so I'd rather take my chances in federal court. And so I'd rather bear that expense. I'd rather get to do more discovery. And so there may be advantages in some cases. You know, so I think that there are arguments on both sides. And and this this is why they're making this argument that the system is unfair. Jim, is that true? I mean, are there stats or anything about how many cases are won by the SEC or the FTC administrative? Is it true? Do defendants lose more before an SEC judge? I think uh, defendants definitely lose more. But some of that may be selection bias because the SEC is, you know, choosing carefully who it is bringing cases against. And so they're bringing cases that are strong. So that, you know, if if you have an administrative agency that is bringing strong cases, then you can expect the win rate to be fairly high. The other factor to consider is most cases settle. The vast majority of cases will settle. It's in the interest of both parties to settle the case. But certainly only a small percentage of the cases that end up being decided by administrative law judge go against the SEC. And that may point to some internal reforms the SEC should consider in terms of its training for administrative law judges and perhaps increasing the adversarial nature of of the process. But I, I do think that most administrative law judges, they understand that they're supposed to be independent. And in that, that, in fact, is why they cannot be fired unless there's good cause. And sort of some of the irony here is that they are arguing that the system is broken because the judges cannot be fired by the president unless there's good cause. But that's precisely what protects the independence of these administrative law judges. I mean, that's, you know, that's the reason why um, they have sort of this insulation from the political process. And that's what some advocates are saying is unconstitutional. Um, And so it, it certainly is a system that doesn't have the same checks and balances within it as an independent federal judge. But it is a system that works if you have a responsible regulator, which I think the SEC is. Any final thoughts about the importance of this decision or the implications? I think, you know, it's, an, it's a very interesting case. It's worth noting this trend, this trend towards greater administrative scrutiny of agencies like the SEC. And I think while it's uncomfortable for the SEC, I think that it could make the agency better. And I think the agency is uh, certainly aware of the limits of its powers. And I think having a bit of oversight by the courts in the background, I think, could improve the way the SEC does things. Um, At the same time, I would urge the courts to be realistic and, and pragmatic as to which battles to fight and which areas to limit these administrative agencies, because they do play a very important role. And if you go too far, who's going to suffer? It's going to be the investors. It's going to be ordinary people. It's going to be the capital markets. It's going to be our overall economy that is not going to be able to function as effectively 
without an effective regulator. And so I would urge the court to be careful about how far they go in applying these administrative law principles. Thanks so much for your insights, Jim. That's Professor James Park of UCLA Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.